0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
1: The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network. The number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO Podcast with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. Conversations throughout the world of sports, usually basketball, with experts. Today's is an absolute expert in sports in the Pacific Northwest at the collegiate level. Love reading his stuff on college basketball over the years. He's become somebody that I look forward to when he releases a new book. He's just released one. I read it in about five days. I'm looking forward to hearing how that came about. It was Mad Hoops on the Oregon Kamikaze Kids days. Bud Withers. Bud, thanks for joining. Hopefully all is well for you today.
0: It is, Dan. Good to be with you.
1: Well, let's just jump right into your newest release as a author, and that's the book I mentioned, uh, Mad Hoops, on the University of Oregon's heyday under Dick Harter and the Kamikaze Kids. It was one of those books where, quite frankly, I couldn't put it down. I, was, I stayed up late a couple nights. Uh, if I woke up early and the kids weren't uh, needing anything yet. I'd sneak off and read 20, 30 pages. Um, it was before I was born. I had heard a lot about that era of Oregon basketball, but I didn't know much about it. What made you want to write a book on that team in that era?
0: Well, to begin with, I was, I was in Eugene, uh, at that time that was sort of early in my sports writing career. And, uh, uh you know worked at the eugene register guard and uh uh i i was actually i guess sort of ironically i was actually the oregon state basketball beat writer so you know the i was covering the team that was the arch rival of of uh dick harter's team but you know being in eugene you, you uh you you were obviously right at the uh kind of the epicenter of of All that was going on with, with the ducks. Even though I was I was covering the beavers and uh, and then you know at the time you know as the years went on, I never really thought of that era as a book. But uh, what really sort of kicked it off was um, four years ago, uh, right about this time of year. I was down in um, Corvallis for a uh, a football game, an Oregon State Washington State football game uh staying at my in-laws and uh, uh got together with some old friends for breakfast the morning of the football game and one of the the people in this group it, it turned out to be a group of 5 one of the people was uh Rick Cooten who was the male cheerleader that Dick Harder <laughs> tripped i know we're getting ahead of ourselves but um uh you know decades earlier he had been the guy that you know waving this trophy um toward the end of a of a civil war game in crevallis and and i was there that night and and so i naturally enough i said hey rick you got to tell us about the events of that night and tell us how it all unfolded and so you know by this time i mean gosh uh you know rick would have been probably early 60s um, and this was four years ago, and so he, you know he very willingly went through the whole the whole thing about how it happened, um, including the fact that he had a he had a a short letter of apology from from Dick Carter, which I was able to to get from him, um, and and is actually pictured in the book. And so, anyway, it it, it got me to thinking. Uh, gosh, it was there was so much stuff that went on uh during that era it, it was I, I was the recently trying to trying to sort of uh come up with a, a similar uh era uh of of basketball and the, the 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 closest thing i could come was was gonzaga basketball just just in terms of the uh community adulation and uh the uh and it, in Oregon's case, there was a lot of there were a lot of haters out there too, just because of the frantic uh, physical style they played and so forth. And um, but there was a big difference. I mean, as, as much love as there is in Spokane and, and elsewhere for Gonzaga, um, with Oregon you had uh, you as I say you had a lot of haters, and you just also you had a lot of drama around the program, which I, I hope you were able to sense by reading the book, you know, there was just always some crisis going on, whether it was, you know, uh, a key player, uh, or, or any player leaving the program or, uh, you know, the, the night that Harder tripped the cheerleader or, uh, the goofy incident in, uh, down at Pullman, uh, Where he he ordered the baskets to be measured because he was sure that they were they were not ten feet high and you know just things like that it was just always something going on with inside the program and and, you know you had the community excuse me you had the community of Eugene just you know riveted to everything they did Um, so it was it was a really intense uh, seven years.
1: I grew up in the, that Portland, Vancouver area, and I grew up wanting to go to Oregon. I grew up knowing about Ralph Miller and Oregon State uh, when they had Gary Payton and, and uh, Brent Berry and some other really good teams. So, so I knew about those programs. Um, you were kind of on the inner circle of really knowing about those programs But back then, covering them as a journalist is much different than, say, you and your covering of Gonzaga Basketball Now and how you've written two books with social media, with the internet. How is it different when you go back and and look at the time when you wrote the Ralph Miller book on Oregon State and maybe this Mad Hoops book and getting your research documented and done and getting your ideas together as opposed to, something like Gonzaga, where it's a little more current with the two books that you've written, and you could go back onto the internet and and social media and find a story almost instantaneously?
0: Well, um, you know, as you point out, it, it it was so different back then, because you didn't have social media. And just in terms of just in terms of promoting a book, it's just totally different. I mean, the fact that I'm sitting here with you, you know, helps to to promote the book. And and you, you know, you didn't have any outlets like that thirty years ago. Um, in uh, in the case of the Oregon State or the the Ralph Miller book that I did thirty years ago, uh, I was really helped out. It just just totally by chance by the fact that that his wife uh, Jean had had saved clippings just uh, copiously over the years. I mean, she was really religious, religious about doing it. And, and it really saved me uh, because I, as, as time went on, I realized I didn't, I really didn't have enough um, from, from sessions with, with taping with, with Ralph to, uh, to really, do it right. I really would have needed to get with him. And and the thing was really done on short notice. And it was, it was really kind of a slapdash effort, so to speak. And, and as you point out, the, um, for instance, with this last book, I was able to, uh, there was a, pardon me, there was a, there's a great uh, Google website that has old um, historical newspapers, like you can go Uh, you can go into the state of Oregon and find uh, newspapers from a century ago or even more, um, you know, papers you've never heard of that are now defunct. Uh, but But in my case, I was able to go back into like the Eugene register guard, my old paper. And if, if there was a particular night that I wanted to research, you know, like maybe a fight broke out or something like that, which, which seemed to have, Happened quite a bit in the harder era, uh, you know. You, you could go back to February twenty sixth, nineteen seventy five, and bam! I mean, literally, uh, you know, within sixty or ninety seconds, you you could have that. You could call that paper up, and it was it was just invaluable to uh, to be able to do that. Now, there there were times when there would be papers missing so to speak, from from the website. And on those occasions, you'd, you'd have to sort of make a list. And I did a bunch of microfilm research in Oregon, both in Corvallis and in Eugene uh, to to uh, dig out those, those missing spots, but the the great percentage of the the research uh, in terms of newspapers can can be found online, which is just tremendously helpful.
1: Yeah, technology is definitely a helpful thing these days. When I look at my kids doing online schooling, it baffles me because you mentioned microfiche, microfilm. When I was a young kid, you know, we thought that was kind of the coolest thing when we got to go do a project in the library and actually got to do that. Yeah. Um, you spent, as you mentioned, uh, 17 years the Eugene register guard you spent a a bit of time split in Seattle between the Seattle PI as well as the Seattle Times so you've covered the Pacific Northwest and you've seen all the rivalries you've seen the big personalities in, in football and basketball is there one personality that maybe really stands out more than others
0: oh goodness um well, you know, definitely. I mean, the the guy that comes to mind quickest is is Dick Harder. Um And again, just because of, I I, I make this point, or I, <clears throat> pardon me, I, hopefully I make it in the book that the Oregon Oregon State basketball rivalry in the seventies was like nothing I've ever seen. I mean, in you know, you you think of the other rivalries that you've been around and uh you know the oregon washington football rivalry is a is a big deal obviously and of course the civil war football rivalry is is something else entirely and uh you know you you go on uh you know gonzaga Washington basketball was once a rivalry but not so much anymore uh but you know that Oregon Oregon State basketball rivalry was just—I mean—it was just tooth and nail uh, every game, and you know Harder and Miller. I believe—I believe it was Miller. Well, I, I know it was Miller that ended up having the a slight edge, like 12 to 11. But but the, those numbers sort of exemplify just the uh, you know the closeness of things. Uh, you know, nobody was going to ever draw away from the other one during that period of time. Um, So, yeah, getting back to your, your question, I, you know, harder, harder certainly, you know, strikes me as the, the predominant, uh, uh, figure, just, just in terms of a polarizing figure during, during all that time.
1: In, in regards to your time when, um, You were down at the Eugene Register Guard covering Oregon State, but keeping an eye on Oregon. UCLA was still in its heyday with Coach John Wooden. As an opposing team's journalist, what were your experiences like with John Wooden?
0: You know, Dan, he was he was amazing. He uh, he was he was very accessible, and and I guess notably, uh, he was accessible. Even after he retired in 1975, he would—I mean, if if you if you had his phone number—and I—I don't remember how I got it—but you know, for for years afterward, he would he would pick up the phone and uh, and, and you know you'd identify yourself and you know you're interviewing John Wooden, um, you know, and of course his teams were—I mean, there was there was something you know magical about those teams and, and it, it went beyond just the fact that they had Kareem Abdul Jabbar and Bill Walton and Jamal Wilkes and, and guys like that it you know when UCLA came to town <clears throat> pardon me when UCLA came to town it was it was just a happening and there was a there was no question there was just a mystique about uh them, you know, watching them on the floor. It was sort of like, you know, you, you, you might be able to relate to this as a, as a competitor yourself. It was sort of like you, you not only had to do in terms of the X's and the O's and the physical stuff against, against a Bill Walton or a David Myers, but you had, to, you had to get over the idea that they were really extra special and you know, a lot of teams, frankly, I think were were beaten before they ever hit the floor against UCLA. They were uh, their their mystique was was just that powerful. You, I mean, you really had to, uh, and I don't know how you do this. You you, you had to uh, you had to get over the the mental side of them before you could ever start entertaining the physical challenge.
1: That's an interesting point and and I I have heard that from other people when they talk about those UCLA glory days. Yeah, they were absolutely talented, but if you didn't go in with that mental edge that you could compete and you could you could beat them, just as you said, you were beat before the tip off even occurred. You you go from the mm-hmm. Eugene area, now you're up in Seattle. That husky elite. Uh, The Husky passion is something that I was able to witness as a basketball player. But when I was there, quite frankly, uh, from 97 to 99, it was all directed towards football. Um, What were some of uh, some of the most interesting or memorable times that you had covering University of Washington athletics, whether it was maybe a Rose Bowl or a big, big performance by a particular player?
0: Well, I did, pardon me, I did, I did, I think, nine years of football. And I I took over at the PI right when, basically, the day that Don James resigned in 1993 in the midst of the uh, Pac-10 investigation of him and so forth. And so I had basically from 93 to, I guess, 01, um, so I had I had the entire Jim Lambright era, and then in basketball, um, I covered them for longer. It was more like twelve years, and I saw all sorts of different things in in basketball, as I'm sure you did during your time there, as well. Um, you know the the um, the Lambright era was interesting because you know he steps into a situation where they're immediately on two years bullpen, bowl- probation so they they can't go to a bowl game and so like his his immediate challenge was to keep they had a really good recruiting class coming in that that first year in 1993 that that had already signed and and he did a great job he and his staff did a great job of of keeping those guys on on board I mean the, the first thing you think of is you know you're going to be on bowl probation bowl ban for Two years you're gonna be out of there and and my recollection is every every guy in that twenty five man class stayed stayed on board now there there may have been some who ultimately left, but it wasn't it wasn't because of the immediate bull band that came down in in uh i guess it be august of uh ninety three so anyway that you know his tenure was as we look back, was probably sort of underappreciated. I mean, he, he ended up going, as I remember, 44 and 25, which, you know, compared to some guys after him, like, like Tyrone Willingham and, and others. Um, I mean, he did a pretty darn good job of, of holding the ship together and keeping them competitive. And they, they won a co Pac-10 championship in 95, the three years into his tenure and so forth. And so, Um, you know, under difficult circumstances, he, he really did, did fine. Um, In, in basketball during the, during the time um, that you mentioned, uh, you know, I covered, I I covered first the Andy Russo era, or at least much of it uh, at Washington uh, in the late 80s. Then I covered the Lynn Nance years, which were Pretty bizarre, you know. I don't know how much you you know about that era, Dan, but you know he was a he was a former not only an FBI investigator but an NCA investigator, and uh, just a really different person. Um, he kind of kind of uh, it it seemed like he was wary of of you know the the next bad thing that could possibly happen he was just not not uh, by nature much of an optimist and it was like if he walked around the corner he was afraid somebody was going to drop a piano out the window or something and on him you know i mean just just that kind of that kind of personality so he was he was really um a very different dude uh and then and then comes Bob Bender into the program and uh he uh you you, you well know uh, coach bender and in and in that area you know he he uh he was an interesting guy and he was certainly certainly a much more upbeat figure uh than, than nance had been it, w- it would have been difficult not to be but um it, i i found his tenure interesting in that he he you know when especially when Todd McCullough came on board uh in, in the late 90s you, you you did did you play yeah. with Todd yeah, yeah. Todd our
1: teammates absolutely
0: exactly yeah um you know obviously things began to get better after after some really ugly years in the in the early 90s um but then you know once it was kind of like a bell curve, you know it started out very slowly and then he it it rose and then he goes to two n c a tournaments in a row um and then totally bottomed out i think he was like ten and twenty in his in his final season of what was it two thousand two i think so um by then i was on on to covering something else and um but it was interesting how he you know he 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 pulled the program out of the doldrums, but ultimately uh, couldn't keep it at that level or anywhere, actually, anywhere near that level.
1: You know, you kind of alluded to, to some things about Andy Russo and, and coaches kind of being interesting covers. Leads me to my next question. And when you're covering a team or a program or an individual, what makes a working relationship for a journalist? or excuse me, for a writer like yourself and that player or coach? What makes it work? Because I know I'm sure from your perspective there's been some that work and you know you're getting a true answer and you know what you can truly share. Um, And then you also, I'm sure, have conversations where it's off the record and you're being told something just so you know the background to something uh, and, and the overall idea behind a program or a person's philosophy.
0: I think it's um, I think it, at its at its root it's at least from a writer's standpoint you, you, you know you appreciate coaches and and also players who 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 understand that you've got a job to do and you know not to take it personally if if something is written that's that seems critical of the performance or of the preparation or, or whatever, um, you know, you, I, I guess what I'm saying is you, you appreciate the guys who, who kind of understand that you've got a job to do. And, you know, we're not here to be your friend. Um, you know, if, if we can be friends or, or at least, you know, cordial and collegial and whatnot, um, uh, so much the better, but, um, you know as an example um you know when i think back on on lambright uh you know he he seemed to understand he was he was a veteran guy obviously and he seemed to understand that hey we all had a job to do and and even though he he had to wade through some really tough times and had a lot of challenges with the program and in terms of manpower and Tough scheduling by the athletic director and so forth he he um I, you know for for lack of a better term it, it seemed like he genuinely liked uh, most of us w- which was great you know and, and i I, w- I was telling somebody recently I, I can't ever remember you know really having had a bad day with him where you know where he was really upset with something I wrote or didn't understand something. I mean, I'm sure there were probably times when, when that was the case, but uh, you know, by and large, he he seemed to understand, Hey, the guy's got a job to do. And, and, uh, uh, you know, we'll get through this type of thing. Whereas, you know, there are other coaches um, and I guess, you know, to, 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 uh, To use an example you know nance was in basketball was was sometimes you know predisposed to to uh, uh, you know not understanding why you wanted to write a certain story or whatever i I remember here's an example um you know nance was here four years and i can't remember which year this would have been but there, it was at a time when when the UW women's program was was uh, really a uh, you know a hot item in in Seattle relative anyway to the to the men's program and there was there was a uh, there was a year when when the women's program was actually for a for a time anyway for for a good part of the year if not the whole season was actually outdrawing the men's program and so. Um, you know the the men were, gosh, they, they were they were probably averaging you know twenty eight hundred or something like that, and, and the women were it wasn't by much, but but still it was notable that they were outdrawing the men, and and I mean I mean he was really upset at at me doing that story. Uh, he didn't understand that at all. You know this is going to kill our recruiting and and all that, and and I'm sort of thinking, hey, you know it's it's a fact, it's out there. You know you, yeah. you're the you're the one who's gotta gotta change the trend. It's it's not me. So, you know, you inevitably you're gonna, you know, if if you get into this business, you're inevitably gonna gonna have battles with with the people you cover. You just I guess as a writer you you hope that that they're well chosen battles and that they're battles that you know that that they're not gonna be always aggrieved because you're, you're writing a story that maybe doesn't reflect well on them when, when, in, when in fact, you know, it's, it's, it's really their, you know, it's, it's their fault. And I'm just pointing out something as, as was the case in that that uh, example about the women outdrawing the men.
1: You're a Seattle guy now. You've been over on the west side for quite some time after coming up from uh, Eugene and, and having covered the Huskies. So most people know you for that work. Although in the last couple of years, you've written two books on Gonzaga basketball, Bravehearts and Glory Hounds. And I know there is a lot of misunderstanding by a lot of Husky fans about how Gonzaga has gotten to where they're at and why they continue to be so good and not wanting to, I guess, admit to it and acknowledge it. And a lot of Spokane, Gonzaga people are, well, they're just bitter on the west side that we have gotten so good and, and this, that, and the other. What is your perspective as that relationship being that you've covered the Huskies, you've become somebody who's covered and written books on Gonzaga? I, I can only imagine you have a unique perspective on it.
0: Yeah. Um, the um, I, I think, you know, Gonzaga has really – they, I, I want to say they have caught lightning in a bottle, but but that that almost sounds like it's, um, it, it doesn't give them enough credit. It, it's more than that. Um, I think what happened is what happened is they they caught lightning in a bottle years ago. I mean, gosh, now we're talking a generation ago. It's hard to believe, but then they they capitalized on it and they built it brick by brick, as as you well know. Um, the uh, the fact that and I remember going into this in in Glory Hounds, <clears throat> pardon me, um, you know they they've they've had such amazing continuity of key people. I mean, there there can't be another program in the country that's had as many key people associated with basketball in in those positions for for so long. I mean. You know, you start with Mark Few, who's, what, in his 21st or 22nd year as head coach, uh, and then for 10 years be- or so before that as an assistant. So he's been there 30 years. And, you know, he's been at Gonzaga for, what would that be? He's been 60-some percent of his life he's been at, at Gonzaga. And then Mike Roth, the, the athletic director, you know, has been there since, I think, the mid-'80s, Um so you're talking about a guy who's been there 35 years in one capacity or another. You know, it just goes on and on. Um, Chris Stanifer, the the assistant to Mike, uh, has been there since uh, you know, I think 95 or something like that, 25, 28 years, something like that. Uh, <clears throat> so their their continuity and their the fact that they're all rowing in the same direction is is just been. Remarkable. Whereas, pardon me, you know, Washington is is not unlike a lot of schools where, you know, you've got you've got uh, you over here. You have great resources in terms of uh, you know financial support, and as you know, you know, big money donors, especially for football, but but also spilling over into basketball. Um, But but you've got the same things that other schools fight and that's uh you know the uh the fact that you you know coaches are are you know they they may move on or they if they don't succeed right away or if they level off and and hit some dead spots like has happened to Lorenzo Romar you know they're fired so so there's you know, you're, you don't have that continuity, you, you know, you've, you've had athletic directors. They've, they've had, gosh, since, I mean, you know, you could, you could almost count them up since, like since you were here, uh, what, 20, 22 years ago, uh, you know, they've, they had Barbara Hedges, they had Todd Turner, they've had, uh, gosh, Jen Cohen now, but I'm, I'm, Forgetting one or two in there, you know. So, so I think probably like four or five athletic directors, and and every time you have a new uh, athletic director, you're, you're going to have somebody who just, by the nature of the beast, it, it is going to put a different emphasis on different programs. I mean, for instance, Barbara Hedges was was really big on supporting the Olympic sports, you know, the non-revenue sports, not so big. Uh, for things like football, so you know, just different emphasis. Whereas, you know, you look at a guy like Mike Roth, and you, you know, you're he he knows obviously that basketball is hugely important. I mean, it's it's the number one you know athletic endeavor at Gonzaga, and so there's no question where his bread is going to be buttered.
1: Yeah, that is, uh, that brings me back to a lot of, of memories that I had at UW, and, and you mentioned some of those people and those names and the comment about Olympic sports. I, I I remember the emphasis on some of those things that, quite frankly, in college sports, there's two sports, I hate to say it, that drive revenue for athletic departments. It's football, and it's men's basketball, and in a few cases, it's women's basketball. Um, So those are some really good points you had there and brought back some memories. Before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to plug your book on Oregon basketball. One more time, the Kamikaze kids, mad hoops. I had a chance. You sent me an advanced copy. Like I said, I read it in about five days. If any of our listeners out there want to get their hands on a copy and and learn more about uh, some of those fun times at Mac court, how can they get a book?
0: You can go either on Amazon and get it, uh, or you know, go into your local bookstore, and and you may have to order it. Well, you'll have to order it on Amazon in, in any case, uh, but you can order it at local bookstores. And hopefully, there, there's been sort of a some sort of hitch in the supply chain at Barnes and Noble, and I'm not sure if that's been worked out yet. But uh, I I think you can at least go in there and, and order it. But Probably the quickest way, if you want to get your hands on it, is through Amazon.
1: Well, Bud, I appreciate you joining the ISO today. It was great to hear some stories of Pacific Northwest rivalries and hear a little bit more about your process of uh, writing a book and, and how you've gone about developing your relationships in the media world as it pertains to college athletics. So for the ISO, I'm Dan Dickow. Today's guest has been Bud Withers.
0: Thanks, Dan. It was a blast.